This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So we've got uh, this, uh, this idea. Uh, it's been promoted lately by atheists. But the, the idea, this worry of, about God of the gaps is not actually one that comes from atheists. It actually comes from Christian uh, thinkers. So about half a century ago, C.A. Colson introduced the phrase God of the gaps, and he was a, a Christian theologian. And he, he, he didn't like it. He, he didn't like a God of the gaps. He said, there isn't one. There is no God of the gaps to take over in those places where science fails. And what he doesn't like is that if you've got gaps like this, they have a lovely phrase, unpreventable habit of shrinking as science goes and fills in and solves all of these problems. So this is not a new idea to the, for the new atheists. It's a, it once goes back to Christian theologians who have themselves been worried about invoking God to solve gaps in science. In fact, the, the idea goes even further back to Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. So the way Thomas would write it was this. He would, he would start off, he, he wrote a whole bunch of uh, small argued pieces called articles in his books. And each one would start by giving arguments for the view that he doesn't like. So one of these articles is, is entitled, Does God Exist? And so here, and there he gives two arguments in favor of a no answer. Why uh, Two arguments against the existence of God. And the first argument is the standard problem of evil, uh, which we're not going to be talking about today unless it comes up in the Q&A. And the second argument is this one. He says, it is superfluous to suppose that what can be accounted for by a few principles has been produced by many. But it seems that every... So this is kind of a statement, I think, of um, Occam's razor. If you can explain things in a simple way with a smaller number of assumptions, that's better. But it seems that everything we see in the world can be accounted for by other principles, supposing God did not exist. And then he says, here's how we do this. For natural things can be reduced to one principle, which is nature. So here's some kind of picture of laws of nature are accounting of the natural things. And he even seems to be having this picture of like an ultimate unification of the laws of nature here that ultimately maybe there's just one kind of fundamental uh, natural thing. And then he says something else that voluntary things can be reduced to one principle, which is human reason or will. So he thinks in the world, you can account for everything either in terms of what we think of as the physical sciences or in terms of psychology. Therefore, at least in this argument, he says, therefore, there's no need to suppose God's existence because the idea is that uh, science, the physical sciences and psychology will, have a, will fill in all the gaps we need. And so we don't need to suppose God's existence. There's nothing for God to do. Now, obviously, uh, Thomas Aquinas isn't going to be called a saint by the Catholic Church as he is if he stops with, there's no need to suppose God's existence. So he's going to have some sort of an answer to this. And we'll talk later on as to what kind of an answer he offers to this uh, argument. So let's start with an old example of a God of the gaps argument. This one was given by Newton, Sir Isaac Newton, and then was popular with some of his followers uh, 
I don't think Newton actually used it so much as an argument for the existence of God, um, but, so, but at least some of his followers like Samuel Clark did. So Newton had his brilliant theory of gravitation. If you've got an inverse square law between two bodies, then it, he, proved, uh, with a, uh, he proved in part by inventing calculus that they orbit each other elliptically forever. The orbits are nice and smooth. It's always uniform if you've got two bodies and you just have this ellipse going over and over and over in exactly the same place com with complete stability. But what? But in the solar system, we don't have just two bodies. We've got the sun, and then we've got a whole bunch of planets. So you're going to have gravity between the planets and the sun. That's the most important influence. But Newton knew there were going to be also influences where the planets are pulling on each other. So if all you had was one planet and the sun, that planet would go in an ellipse around the sun forever without any problems. But Newton thought that if you've got three or more bodies, it's probably not going to be stable. We, he couldn't solve the equations exactly with three or more bodies. And in fact, we've kind of got proofs that uh, except in special cases, you cannot solve the equations exactly with three or more bodies. Um, and he was really worried that the result was going to be an unstable solar system where, you know, the planets will fly, either fly off or hit the, the, the sun because uh, they will disturb each other out of the elliptical orbits through their mutual gravity. And so he, he thought this is a problem. He knew this was going to be a problem for his theory. Because his theory is supposed to say, you know, everything is run in the solar system is run by gravitation. Um, but it looks like the solar system is unstable. And yet, you know, it's on the other hand, it seems like the motions of planets are as stable as anything we can see in the world. So we've got a bit of a problem here. So his solution was that one of two things happened. Maybe from time to time, God just intervened. And when one of the planets was being pushed out of its elliptical course by one of the other planets, God just sort of nudged it a little back in. And so then it came back to its elliptical orbit and we get stability over a long period of time. Um, that's one possibility. The other possibility that apparently he thought was an option was that maybe it's God did a really good job setting things up at the very beginning of time so that there's like, this extremely carefully fine-tuned initial set of conditions so that with these specific conditions, we get stability. But the view that, got, the view that his followers, I think, uh, caught on to mostly was the one that God would make these periodic little adjustments. And some of his followers thought, this is great. This is like an argument for the existence of God, like from science, because we've got, on the one hand, we know by observation that the solar system is an extremely stable thing. It's been around for a long, long time. On the other hand, it doesn't look like it should be stable because of the gravity between the planets disturbing the orbits. So we have an argument for the existence of God. It must be God who's like tweaking the planets and putting them back in their orbits. Well, so this is a classic God of the gaps argument. And as happens with God of the gaps arguments, the gaps get filled and shrink. So. Uh, the physicist and mathematician Laplace, about a hundred years later, managed to finally be able to develop the mathematics needed to 
take into account at least approximately the gravity between the different planets. And he found, no, in fact, it is actually a stable system. So Newton was, was wrong, uh, I, uh, wrong about the science in this case. It's, it, it, the math actually leads to a stable system. I guess it was wrong about the math. It was wrong about the math. The math does actually lead to a stable system. And so we don't need God for this. And so he was, there's a famous story. I don't know if it's really true or not. I haven't tracked it down, but that he was asked, so what about God in your system? And he says, oh, we have no need of that hypothesis. And I don't think he meant for that, like, we don't need God at all. He just meant, we don't need God to solve the problem of the stability of the solar system. That's just done by science. Okay, so this is one example of uh, a God of the gaps argument. Uh, we've got this very strictly scientific problem that science at that time cannot solve, but we have a solution in terms of religion. Because you know you, it makes some and, and it makes some sense in that uh, you know God presumably wants the solar system to be stable so that the living creatures on the third planet might be able to survive uh, well for a long period of time, and so God fixes things up. Okay, but then it disappears with Laplace. We've got in modern times, I guess the most common kind of uh, God of the gaps argument we've had is it has been. Uh, evolutionary ones, that there are things that evolution has not explained, um, which is not surprising given, you know, the millions of species on earth. It's not surprising that there are some aspects of some of the species that have yet to be explained evolutionarily, even if evolution is actually true, as I think it basically is. Um, but there are things not explained. And so we, people bring in God to fix those gaps. So what's wrong with God of the gaps arguments? Well, here's sort of three things that seem a little problematic. One is it's ugly. Uh, the calculus was invented by two people, Newton and Leibniz, more or less working at the same time. They had this fierce rivalry. And one of the things Leibniz had fun doing was just ridiculing Newton's theories. And he really did not like this idea of a God who had to make adjustments from time to time. He said, it's like somebody who makes a watch and that watch can't just go on on its own. It has to be constantly adjusted. Sure, when we make watches, it's like that, that but God could do better than that. It's just an ugly universe that has to have constant adjustment. Secondly, it's sort of individually for religious people, the God of the gaps argument is kind of risky. If you base your faith on a gap in science, that means that when science solves that problem, you've got nothing left for your faith to be based on. And there's another kind of religious problem that, you know, if you're thinking about God's activity in terms of, primarily in terms of uh, fixing up gaps in science, then as the science grows, what you have left to praise God for shrinks. And you get worried, as Dawkins suspects is the case, that there's nothing left for God to do in the end. Maybe in the end, science just can understand everything. And we have, as Aquinas is worried, nothing for God to do. Because all the gaps have been fit, will have one day be, be filled. So I want to talk about God, the 
the limits of science and see if there are some kinds of things that are not really properly said to be gaps, but there are more like limits of science. A gap is something you can close, but a limit might be something that cannot possibly be closed. So I want to see if there are such things, and I think there are. Let's start with some uh, obvious thing. There are some things science just doesn't know. We don't currently know the source of dark matter. Uh, there's a whole bunch of protein families, uh, uh, starting with the letters D, U, F, uh, that uh, are so classified because we don't know what their function is. Right? There's just stuff science doesn't know. Um, and there's stuff that science will never know. So here are my, my two fun examples on the slide. Um, what did I have for breakfast three days after it should be my fourth birthday? Science will never know that. I don't know it. I bet my parents don't remember it anymore. And you know, there's no way science will ever figure this out because even if our science improves, eh, the data will get further and further from us, more and more will be forgotten. There just aren't any like fossil evidence of my breakfast on that specific day. Science will never know that. Here's another thing. Uh, science doesn't know whether the number of cats in existence right now is even or odd. It's one of the two. I don't know which one it is. God, if God exists, God knows, but science does not know. Okay, but these are not like really interesting things that science doesn't know, right? Um, in fact, even though they are things that science doesn't know, these are all things that science in principle could know. And alien tech, we don't actually have, I assume, aliens snooping on Earth. But if we had them, alien scientists could count the cats. Um, I, just say, I, I think I had, a, in my first, uh, when I first wrote this example, I meant, I was asking what Einstein had for breakfast, and then for some reason I changed it to I in one place. Anyway, so it's supposed to be, I think, what Einstein had for breakfast three days after his fourth birthday. And I said, well, Einstein's mother could have kept a diary, and then scientists could have examined the diary and, uh, and try to figure out whether it's authentic, and then they have learned what he had three days after his fourth birthday. But in fact, I take it she did not keep such a detailed diary, and if she did, we don't have it. And so this is something science will never know but it's not in principle scientifically unknowable. But are there going to be, are there some things that science not only doesn't know and will never know, but just could not be known? And the reason they could not be known is because of the nature of science as science. And if there are such things, then if we invoke God to solve, uh, to answer questions that lie beyond these limits of science, those questions will not constitute God of the gaps arguments because they cannot be, they will not be the things that scientifically can be closed because they will be beyond what even a future science will do. So I'm going to argue there are a bunch of things like that. And to do that, let's, let's think back a little bit to some very easy stuff. Uh, what is science? Uh, well, they're hard questions, but there's some easy history and so fairly superficial. So, Western science sort of maybe gets really seriously going with Aristotle back in the fourth century BC. But Aristotle's science is very different from our science. While Aristotle does a fair amount of empirical research, he was like one of those guys who would just like to go to a fish market and buy fish, odd fish, and dissect them and so on, because he was really curious what they were like and how, and so on. He did a lot of empirical work. At the same time, he was very interested in 
what we call what philosophers call normative questions, questions of purpose and value. So he would ask, what are our sharp front and blunt back teeth for? And his answer was the sort of obvious one that the front ones are for cutting and the blunt and the back ones are for grinding. What is the normal number of legs for a sheep? That's a different question from just asking what is the average or mode or median or whatever number of legs for a sheep. The question of what is the normal number of legs for a sheep is a very different question. So what, what kind of, what number of legs a sheep should have? If a sheep doesn't have four legs, and the answer is presumably four, uh, if a sheep doesn't have four legs, there's something wrong with the sheep. What purpose, Aristotle wondered, do the orbits of the planets have? His answer was to reflect the, uh, the unchanging majesty of the gods and their, and their constant thinking through their uniformity. These are not questions that science asks nowadays. Science may say, how are sharp front teeth and blunt back teeth evolved? and because of what they evolved, but that's not the same really as saying what their true purpose is. Science doesn't talk of what is normal and not normal. It talks of what is statistically average, what is median, what is the mode, and things like that. Science doesn't talk about the purposes of the orbits of the planets. And Aristotle also asked metaphysical questions, like what is the nature of causation? Say A causes B. You light a fire with a match, the, the striking of the match causes a fire. How, what is this causes thing? Uh, science, uh, the, modern science doesn't ask these questions. Um, and it's because we had a scientific revolution with people like Bacon and Galileo, which we, people say, talk of it as disenchanting the world. And I think all that really means is that from the point of view of science, we're no longer going to be looking at questions of metaphysics or questions of value or purpose or normativity. We're going to put these questions aside and focus on what's empirical, descriptive, and non-normative. And I'm not criticizing this in any way. I think this was actually a very good thing for science to have done, to have put away these questions. This laser-like focus on what is empirical, what's descriptive, what's not normative, led to extremely rapid progress. Before that, science was moving slowly. It was making progress, but it was slow progress. Suddenly, it's suddenly around at this time, the scientific revolution takes off. Everything, we learn lots and lots of stuff very quickly. I mean, imagine we've got Galileo, not, not long after that, we've got uh, we've got Kepler and we've got, uh, and then we have Newton and Leibniz inventing calculus, Newton uh, uh, inventing his theory of gravitation and showing that it explains the orbits of the planets and uh, giving theories of light and amazing progress. And then we got quantum mechanics and relativity theory uh, about uh, less than 300 years later. It's really amazingly fast progress. And I think it's probably true that this fast progress is enabled by the fact that science stopped asking certain kinds of questions. And if you don't ask these questions, you can make more progress on the questions you do ask. But I don't think this means that the old questions were unimportant questions. 
And here, here's why, why I'm thinking that. Uh, a, a somewhat later step than the, than the initial beginning of the scientific revolution and also led to an enormous progress in science was scientific specialization, which started probably more like in the second half of the 19th century and, and has been carried to ridiculous lengths uh, in, in the second half of the 20th century. Um, if you focus primarily on chemistry, we discovered, you can be a better chemist than if you give equal time to biology, astronomy, or psychology, right? So we want, we do better at one science if you don't spend as much time on the others. That doesn't mean that the chemist thinks that biology, astronomy, and psychology aren't important. It's just that the chemist has a job to do, which is to investigate chemistry. And while it's, the chemist will probably benefit from getting some, having some interdisciplinary contact with biologists, astronomers, or maybe even in some cases, psychologists, though probably less likely. Um, that should be somewhat limited. The, the focus on one area is very useful. And I think the same happened with science, namely that uh, more broadly, that we put away certain questions as outside the realm of science, but that doesn't mean that we thought they weren't important. I mean, these people in the scientific revolution, uh, like Newton and uh, Leibniz, they were int interested in these other questions too. They didn't think they were unimportant, but they focused and the focus enabled uh, on the scientific ones enabled things. So I think what's happened is just, we've got a division of labor. Those old questions about metaphysics and the normativity they're left to other people, to philosophers, to theologians, uh, to maybe sort of just thinkers more broadly. And then science focuses on the empirical. And that, and that has worked for us. But because of this, because of this new division of labor, science has set limits for itself, limits of specialization. And so, Namely, it focuses on the empirical, the descriptive, the non-normative. And so I want to talk about three kinds of things that lie beyond those limits. First, the normative, questions of value, which we can summarize as the true, the good, and the beautiful. Two, the metaphysical, questions of the ultimate nature of things described by science and their ultimate origins. And three, the logical, which is mathematics and its foundations. And these are not like temporary gaps in science. You're not going to win a rowing match by playing tennis. And you're not going to answer these questions by doing science because these are not questions of science. Unlike the question of what the stability of the orbits or, evo or evolution. And I think in these questions, thinking about God may help. So I'm not going to say too much about it, but more may will come out in the Q&A. So let's go to the normative. Start with truth. Let's think about a science, geology. Geology gives us really good evidence to think that the earth is billions of years old. Now here's something that seems wrong, that, that may seem kind of odd what I just wrote. Geology doesn't tell us what we should think given this evidence. You might think, yeah, surely geology, geologists all the time tell us that we should think the earth is billions of years old. If you, like, uh, you know, you, go, you take a geology class and you write down, and there's a question of, about the age of the earth and you write down that it's uh, uh, 20,000 years old, you're going to get it wrong. 
and uh, you'll lose a po points. Yeah, that's not geology though. That's a geologist. That's a particular teacher who says what we should think. But it's not geology that says that. Why? Because the question of what we should think is not a geological question. It's a question about human beings, what human beings should do. And geology doesn't talk about human beings. I mean, maybe occasionally sort of it has some connections, but mostly it doesn't. Um, so geology doesn't tell us what we should think because it doesn't talk about us. There are sciences that do talk about us, biology, psychology, sociology, those things do talk about us. But even those sciences don't tell us what we should think. They tell us what we do think. Psychology is, spends a lot of time trying to figure out what we do think. Um, but it doesn't say what we should think. And it's not actually an obvious question. I mean, even if you say, here's the evidence. The evidence is the earth is billions of years old. Somebody could say, so what? The evidence is that the earth is billions of years old. I'm not going to think that anyway. Why should I follow the evidence? I mean, that's kind of depressing. The earth being so old, so much older than me, like I seem so small in the face of all these uh, billions of years. I don't want to think that it's going to make me depressed, right? So is that a crazy thing to think? Well, not necessarily. It depends what your purposes are. What is, is the truth more important or is it being feeling good is more important? That's not, a, that's not a geological question, obviously. It's not even a psychological question, whether it's better to believe the truth or to feel good. Uh, psychology may tell us what we should do to feel good or what we should do to you know, live a certain kind of life, but it's not going to tell us what is the good kind of life. Uh, what if lying? Some, this is something that you know, sort of has come up in the various public questions over the past year. What if lying is sometimes good for public health. Should we believe, uh, should we believe and, and teach what, uh, is, what the evidence supports or is it sometimes maybe good to lie for the sake of public health? I mean, maybe it would have been good for the vaccine manufacturers to make up data saying that the vaccines are 98% effective because then more people would get vaccinated and uh, we, we would be healthier. That question, whether it would be good for them to lie in this way and lead us to, away from the truth is not a scientific question. It's a question of what is good and bad. And then we have this deep fundamental question. Let's suppose as scientists generally do that we should follow the evidence. I think that's definitely right. But what makes following the evidence be the right way to think? Well, here, these are questions beyond science because they're normative questions. And we have some answers uh, that are given by people in terms of uh, God, for example, they're not the only answers, but one answer is that uh, given by Thomas Aquinas, we have a certain metaphysical aspect to us, what he calls our rational human nature, which comes from God and which requires us to follow the evidence to the truth. And if we don't do it, we're not faithful to ourselves as human beings. Moreover, if God exists, we have some reason to hope that the true and the good go together. And that we shouldn't worry that the truth is more, it might sometimes be depressing because in fact, it's good for us if we're created by God to believe the true. Here's another thing, the good. Uh, here's a question science doesn't answer. Is science worth doing? I mean, sort of obviously there's like nothing you can do scientifically to answer the question whether science is worth doing. I mean, you can find out things like, hey, 
if you do science, fewer people will die of nasty diseases. But then you ask the question, is it bad for people to die of nasty diseases? That's not a scientific question. Second, questions of what to do with, so there's the qu fundamental question whether we should even bother with science. And second, the question is once we've done science, what should we do with that knowledge? And then we get lots of ethical questions about human flourishing, the meaning of life, health, medical ethics, uh, public policy, environmental ethics, all sorts of things. Um, science is going to always give some information that's relevant to these answers. Like it will tell us, hey, if we don't, uh, if we keep on releasing carbon into the atmosphere, it's going to get hotter and there are going to be species dying off and human beings are going to be dying maybe and uh, so on. And then somebody can say, yeah, so what? I mean, that, at that point, the so what is not to be answered by any science. Science is not going to tell you that it's bad for species to die off or bad for humans to die. That's beyond science to figure out whether it's good or bad. I don't think we can just be subjectivists about it. We can't just say it just depends on what you think because then it just becomes a free for all rather than any kind of serious debate. Uh, some people have tried to give like purely evolutionary accounts of morals, explaining how it is that we got moral beliefs uh, through evolution, that it helps us cooperate and this cooperation helps us survive. But that doesn't actually answer the question of whether we should do this. That would, in fact, this kind of uh, picture undercuts ethics. It says we're built to think this way, but is it right? It doesn't answer that question. I'm inclined to think we probably need God to explain how it is that our conscience lines up with ethical reality. We have a conscience. Maybe there's a good evolutionary account of how we got it. But it's not just, but that conscience is in fact often right. When our conscience says we should not pollute the world, our conscience is right. And I think we actually may need God to explain how it is the conscience connected up with what is true about what is right. Um, one more thing here, uh, the, the beautiful. Uh, scientists go for more elegant, more beautiful theories. Um, here's my little example of a graph. I've got uh, five data points. Um, I can draw a, a poly, uh, I can draw, I can do a polynomial that fits those five data points completely precisely, right? Um, that's my little wavy curve. No scientist will think that curve is the right answer to what happens in this, in whatever experiment this is. The typical scientist will say the right answer is that straight line, that more elegant straight line, even though that straight line actually fits the data less well. We want a kind of beautiful science, an elegant science, a simple science. I think in different sciences, we get different kinds of beauty. Physicists focus a lot on simplicity. Biologists focus a little bit more on diversity, but there's still a kind of beauty that we search for in all the sciences. We want laws of nature that are beautiful. There's another example is my sort of the, my little uh, formulas above the graph. Um, so here we go. Here's what, what, what we think is the right, or at least what we thought in Newton's time was the right theory of gravity, right? GM, um, gm1 m2 divided by the square of the distance. Here's another theory. It's the same thing, except now we raise the distance to the power of two plus 
a very, very tiny number. Those two theories predict exactly the same motions of the planets. As far as I know, no scientist is going to go for the second one. And why? I think it's because it's, it's, it's more ugly. It's ugly. The first one is the beautiful one. But I think science is not going to explain why it is that the beautiful is more likely to be true. It presupposes that that's how our scientific method works is we look for simpler theories, but it doesn't have an answer to the question of why the simpler ones are the true ones. I think the pursuit of duty is a part of human nature. It's always been a part of human nature. Um, and if the pursuit of beauty is merely subjective, and yet science is built on the pursuit of beauty, then science is itself subjective. And I don't like that. I think that's not right. I think science does give us objective truth. And that I think it means we need to see beauty as something objective. And again, I think if you have a, if you believe in God, that gives you a way to see that. God as a thing that is supremely beautiful, who creates a world with beautiful laws of nature that are more likely to be true if they, if they are beautiful and creates beings like us that recognize and appreciate beauty. God may not be the only solution to this problem, but it's a solution. Here's something else, metaphysics. Science talks of physical reality. Physical reality cannot explain itself. Why not? Well, I mean, if we did, we would either have an infinite regress, this bit of physical reality explained by this one, by this one, by this one, and so on forever. And that really wouldn't explain ultimately where the physical reality comes from. Or we would have a circularity where physical reality somehow explains itself. Neither of these is a real kind of explanation. So I think physical reality cannot be explained in terms of physical reality. So science cannot explain where physical reality comes from. Science can explain where various parts of physical reality can come from. It can maybe explain where, the ma where matter comes from or where, uh, where certain fields come from. But where all of physical reality as a whole comes from, I think is just beyond science, not because of any kind of lack of scientific gap in scientific knowledge. It's not like something that, that it's a scientific problem. It's just because science only talks of physical reality. And if there is an explanation of physical reality itself, that explanation has to lie outside of physical reality. And so if somebody like say a Thomas Aquinas invokes God to explain physical reality by saying it's created by God, they're not invoking God of the gaps. They're just giving a story of what goes beyond science, a theory of what goes beyond science. There's a second thing kind of closely related to the things I said about beauty. Um, our practice of science depends on the idea that we have uniform laws of nature that are the same here and elsewhere, right? So we, we observe that energy is conserved around Earth. We observe it to a lesser degree maybe away from in our astronomical observations further away. And then we just assume, yeah, it's gonna be like that everywhere. We do this all the time. We suppose that basically that how things are in the lab is how they are outside the lab, unless there's some relevant difference that we can point to, right? I mean, obviously there being in the lab does in fact sometimes make a difference. For instance, if you do psychological experiments, people behave differently in labs and outside of labs. Fine, you take that into account. But still, there, the, in science, we're looking for these uniform laws of nature. We assume they will be there. Um, 
I mean, imagine this theory. Here's the theory of gravitation. This theory says this. Here's the force of gravity. It's, it's G M1, M2 divided by R squared until the year 2500, at which point the exponent in the denominator goes from uh, two to three. Starting with the year 2500, the law of gravity will be G M1, M2 divided by R cubed. This new theory of gravity fits the data just as well as the old theory of gravity did, right? I mean, because all our observations are before the year 2500. So it fits the data just as well, but it's, it's not uniform. Science is not going to go for that one. We go for uniform laws, the same throughout time and space. And I, scientific explanations always invoke laws of nature, I think, or something like laws of nature. And hence, they cannot themselves explain these laws, the fundamental laws of nature and where they come from. If God exists, God is by definition perfectly good. And a good being loves what is beautiful and loves what is good. So God would love the beauty of the laws of nature and would want us to make predictions. So we would expect that if God existed, there will be elegant and uniform laws of nature that enable us to do science. Arguing that God explains laws of nature may not be the only possible solution to this question, but it's definitely not a God of the gaps solution because it's a problem that science will not solve. One last thing. Here's something that uh, some time back I realized about mathematics and logic. On the one hand, if we look at the areas of our knowledge, mathematics and logic are the most certain and least controversial things we've got. Like, we don't argue about it. You know, I'm a philosopher, um, but I sometimes, I'm also used to be a mathematician. Sometimes I go to math talks, and it's really delightful to go to math talk for, because after a philosophy talk, everybody argues back and forth. At the end of a math talk, people just sort of ask questions. Well, could you maybe take, you know, what, what about this? Can you prove this? Or, or can you fix, okay, can, here's an idea, maybe this will help you with this problem you couldn't solve. But nobody goes and says, that's just wrong. I mean, occasionally people point out like a typo or something. Um, but like, if it's well done, no, no, it's, it's not, a, it's not, there's no controversy, right? I mean, it's stuff we're sure of. But here's the other thing about math. Even though it's the it may be the one of the most certain of things for us, it's also the most obscure because we don't know what it means. When we talk about geology, chemistry, biology, and non-fundamental physics, uh, we actually know what we're talking about. Like we know what tech, uh, we we know what you know continental plates are. You know we know kind of what molecules are. We know kind of what cells are. Uh, Non-fundamental physics here, I mean, you know, sort of like uh, mid-sized objects sort of physics, like, you know, sort of semi-classical kinds of physics. We know what we're talking about. Quantum physics and, and relativity theory, maybe with there we don't quite know what we're talking about. But for non-fundamental physics, we know. But even though we know these things, we're not sure of it, right? Science is very fallible. This is, in fact, essential to, to science, according to, some, to many people. Geology makes mistakes, chemistry makes mistakes, biology makes mistakes, physics makes mistakes. We expect that some things in our textbooks will be wrong. So we, we're much less sure about it than we are about the things in math. But at the same time, we know what we're talking about. Well, in math, we don't know what we've been ta we're talking about. 
pretty much most of what we have like under in an ancient geology, chemistry, biology, or physics book, uh, we're going to say that's that's not quite right, or that's just completely wrong. But you pick up Euclid's Euclid's uh, books uh, on mathematics, or and yeah, there's maybe a few little tiny tweaks here and there. He forgot an axiom here. Um, we can fill it in slightly, but basically it's just right. You know, like uh, you've got this proof from what, about 2,400 years ago, maybe a bit less, maybe a bit more, I don't know exactly, that there are infinitely many prime numbers. That proof's exactly right. We're not going to change our minds on that. But even though that proof's right, and we're really confident there are infinitely many prime numbers, we have very little idea of what numbers are. So we've got this unique combination of certainty and mystery. And yet this area, this obscure area, is really central, as we know, to, to the practice of science. So we've got these deep questions. What are mathematical truths about? And how do our minds get at those mathematical truths? And I think neither question is really a scientific question. Science depends on mathematics, but its fundamentals lie beyond science. In fact, even mathematics cannot explain its own axioms. Uh, we have some theorems from Bagetel that suggest the mathematics goes beyond logic. Sorry, logic, not logic. Um, and what is it about? Well, we don't know. We don't, we, there are theories. Plato thought mathematics dealt with some deep metaphysical reality that is beyond our physical lives. But he did not explain how we're hooked up to it. St. Augustine famously thought that mathematical truths were about the mind of God and that God created us in part so that we could know those truths. So that by studying mathematics, we're actually learning about God. Difficult questions. All in all, I think science depends on things that are beyond science. Science presupposes answers to questions of value. Questions, what should we do and what should we think? Namely, presupposes the answer that we should do science, at least as one of our major tasks, and that we should think with the evidence. Science doesn't ask the ultimate questions about the origins of reality and the origins of the laws of nature. Science is not mathematics. And it is precisely because science is so modest about what it does, that it's so good at what it does. Like we know that, you know, if, if you're full of yourself uh, uh, you're a, and you think you can do everything, you will likely screw up. Science is, limits itself and therefore it's successful. But if you add to science this extra thing, this extra claim that science is the whole of reality, the whole of truth, then you cut the branch the scientist sits on because science requires other things. We need to go beyond science. Invoking God when going beyond science is not just filling a gap. There may be other ways than invoking God, but invoking God is not just filling a gap here. 